uh, I will say to you with uh, no reservation that I, I dearly love your pastor. Um, he mentioned the difficulties that come in ministry, and he, he, he's not wrong in that. And uh, during a particularly difficult time in my own ministry, uh, he was there to, uh, to give me some words of counsel and encouragement. So uh, always, uh, always do appreciate uh, the fellow pastors uh, that, that minister in this area and your pastor being uh, almost chief among those. So uh, with that, uh, please turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter Five, the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And in the beginning of the chapter, and many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with this passage, uh, there's this little section in the beginning of, of chapter 5 of Matthew that we call the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes I have heard described by uh, different commentators as the beautiful attitudes that we should have as followers of Christ. So I'm going to read the entire section of the Beatitudes there in just a moment, but we're really just going to focus on one of these Beatitudes here this evening. Uh, so I have a question, though, before we get to the text. Uh, how many of you, whether it be uh, watching TV uh, on, a, on a given night and a commercial comes on, or perhaps you're in the grocery store and you're walking down the aisle, perhaps the detergent aisle, and, and you see on the, on the front label or it's at the end of the, the TV commercial, you see this big starburst that says, Satisfaction Guaranteed. No matter what, this product is so good, your satisfaction is absolutely guaranteed. It doesn't matter if it's laundry detergent or sugary breakfast cereal. You, they are guaranteeing that you will be satisfied. But can those products, can the companies behind those products really guarantee my satisfaction? Can they really guarantee your satisfaction? Can they really promise, can they guarantee, can they be absolutely 100% assured that we will be completely and utterly satisfied with their product or service? No, they, they, can't be, they can't be absolutely sure of that. But what they're really saying by this guarantee is satisfaction guaranteed or your money back. Right? If you're not satisfied, we have a way that we can try to satisfy you uh, by giving you your your money back. They're, they're so confident in their product, and they are confident, that, that they're willing to return your investment if you're not completely happy uh, with its performance, its taste, whatever that may be. Now, we all want to be satisfied. Uh, that's what we're seeking in life. Uh, believe it or not, about five years ago, some of you may have seen this as well, I, I don't know, uh, but maybe five or six years ago, I remember seeing an article about a church that offered uh, their congregation a, a money-back guarantee on tithing. They said, listen, everybody, now you guys, you, you know, I know some of you probably don't tithe. You may think you can't afford it. I'm gonna, we're going to tell you that over the next 90 days, if you will commit to give at least 10% of your income to this church, if at the end of that 90 days you're not completely satisfied, we will return every dime. That's what they did. The idea that they were going at there was what I believe to be a misuse of an Old Testament passage, but uh, the people in droves signed up for this challenge because there was no way they could lose, right? Uh, it, they didn't even have to trust God because their church was going to fund their, uh, their return on their investment. Uh, they could just trust the, the church bank account. 
Now, this message isn't anything to do with really about giving, but I hope you get the, the issue here. We, we, we seek satisfaction, but so often we seek satisfaction in the wrong places. And we'll look at that more as we get into our text. So again, we're going to be looking at Beatitude number 4 in our text this morning, found on Matthew, in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6. But for the sake of context, I'm going to read the whole section starting in verse 1 uh, through to verse 12, just to give us kind of the whole section. So again, the Word of God says this, starting in verse 1, Seeing the crowds, he, meaning Jesus, went up on the mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the poor in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray together. Lord, I just thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much for uh, the wisdom that is found within. Thank you so much for the life-giving words of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we just pray that as we look into just this one beatitude, this one verse in verse 6 here, Lord, that we would see uh, that true satisfaction only comes in you. And we just praise you and thank you for your grace and the mercy that we find in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when I preached on the Beatitudes at my own church several years ago, uh, we considered the fact that as you go through these Beatitudes, it seems that you can, can see that they follow kind of a logical progression. Uh, one Beatitude can kind of lead uh, quite naturally into the next. And uh, just giving you an example leading up to our text for this evening, uh, what, we, what we see first on the list, we, we see that we're blessed we see that, that we have the favor of God if we are poor in spirit. When we understand the, the, the truth that there's absolutely nothing that's inherent within me and within you that would ever commend us to God. The love that we receive from God has nothing to do with how great we are. Uh, and once we recognize that truth, as we recognize our spiritual poverty, that reality is that kind of sets into our hearts and our minds that should drive us to a place of mourning over our sin, as, as well as the state of the sinful state of the world that we, we see around us. And, and that state of mourning then gives way to an attitude of meekness, of, of gentleness in the day we, way we deal with others. And, and we understand who God is and we understand who we are in comparison. That leads us to this meekness, this humility. And that meekness and humility that's built into the knowledge of our fallen state then leads us to verse 6, to our text tonight. And I think this statement that we find in, in chapter 5, verse 6 here, actually draws our attention to one of the most fundamental doctrines of the gospel, that, that reality that salvation is completely and totally of grace, completely the free gift of God. So we look at two different aspects of this. We're going to look first at the design of our hunger and thirst, and then we're going to look at the direction 
of our hunger and thirst. Our design of our hunger and thirst and then the direction of our hunger and thirst. So first of all, the design of our hunger and thirst. So you think of those words, you think of, of hunger and you think of thirst, and those are, those are images of need. We, we, can, we can have a strong desire and, and, you know, that could never be fulfilled, and we can still go on with life. If I desire a particular item, if I desire uh, you know, a particular vacation, and that's just never going to happen, I can still function in life. I may be disappointed at times, but I can still go on with life. But if I'm hungry and thirsty, if the needs that I have are actually food or water, those desires eventually are going to have to be met or I'm dead. Those are things that we require, we must obtain, or we die. But you notice, Jesus doesn't say here, blessed are those who desire righteousness. Although certainly desiring righteousness would be a good thing. But Jesus uses the words quite intentionally, hunger and thirst. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. These are terms of extreme need. But the the intensity that's intended here can be difficult for us in our culture here in the United States to really feel. Because let's face it, if I'm, if I'm thirsty, most of the time I can just head over to the refrigerator and grab something to drink, or at worst case, in a pinch, I go over to the faucet and, and fill my cup from the water that comes out of the tap. If I'm hungry, most of the time I can go right to my pantry or, or again, over to the refrigerator, and I can satisfy that hunger pretty quickly. But to the people in Jesus' day, particularly the poor, the idea of starvation or dehydration was a much more real scenario. And this is the idea that Jesus is pointing us to here. Now, you know, those of you who have kids here, or maybe you remember when you were a kid, either or, uh, you may remember something like this. I know when my kids were younger, I have three boys, the youngest is, is 20 now, but uh, when they were younger, sometimes one of them might say, I'm hungry. And, you know, perhaps when one of them would say that, my wife might say something like, well, there's some leftover meatloaf in the fridge from dinner last night, or maybe I just cut up some vegetables. We have a nice fresh salad in there for you. Go help yourself. And you can imagine the words that came out of my kid's mouth after something like that, right? Well, I'm not hungry for that. Right? I, I'm, not, I'm hungry, but not for salad or meatloaf, right? They want ice cream or Doritos is what they're looking for, right? They've got a separate, my, my son, my, my middle son, always says that there's a separate stomach for dessert. He's got a separate one. Now, this one's full. I've got to go over to this one. So, yeah, they, they're, they're hungry, kind of, but they're not really, really hungry, right? Some of you may be familiar with the name Ernest Shackleton. I don't know how many of you are familiar with, with him, but he was an explorer. And back in 1908, he and three other, uh, other men set out on a 1,700-mile trek to the South Pole from a camp where they had spent the winter. Now, I can't imagine why in the world they would want to do this, but that is what they decided to do. They were determined to go to the South Pole, and they were set off. These, these four men set off with, uh, with some, some ponies uh, you know, with supplies on it, and they set off on this 1,700-mile trek to the South Pole. Now, weeks later, all the ponies were dead, uh, their supplies were nearly exhausted, and they, they turned back to their base, uh, having failed to actually reach their destination. Through this whole trip, they had been on the, the road there. They had been traveling for 127 days. 
in extreme situation, extreme conditions. And on the return journey, Ernest Shackleton said that all their time, every conversation they had as they trudged their way back to their home camp was talking about food. Every conversation, they talked about the elaborate feasts they would have when they got back. They talked about the different gourmet delights, their favorite things that they couldn't wait to try. They're staggering along. They're sick. They're not even knowing whether they're going to make it back alive. And every waking hour is consumed with thoughts of food. Now, I'm going to ask the question. Because it may be, some of you may have been somewhere like this. But have you ever been that hungry? I can say I've never been that hungry. Where every waking thought, sometimes I feel like every waking thought is thinking about food. But, but not like this, right? Every waking thought is the thinking about eating. And that's the kind of hunger and thirst that I think we really need to, to focus on here as we realize that that Jesus himself, even though most of us here at least would say, I've never been that hungry. Jesus can say he was. Jesus felt that kind of hunger. In, in the chapter right before this one, in chapter 4, we see that just after he got baptized, Jesus headed into the wilderness for 40 days. And we know that during that entire time, he didn't eat anything. And it was at that time when he was hungry, after 40 days of eating nothing, that Satan came to tempt him. And if you remember, one of the things Satan did is he tempted Jesus to take this stone and command a stone to become bread. Now, how many of you have ever fasted from food for more than a day? A number of you, okay. Uh, how many have ever gone 40 days without eating? All right, no, nobody. Now, there are a few people that have done it in some different ways, some different scenarios, and there's different ways of doing it, but, but I've never come close to that. And, and frankly, to be honest, I think after 40 days, I wouldn't have needed to command the stone to become bread. I just would have gnawed on it as it was. It would have been just fine right there. But I know, uh, I know today uh, there's a very popular thing that people do and they, you know, different churches will sponsor times of fasting and they'll talk about not, not necessarily fasting from food, but you know, fasting from social media, fasting from uh, video games, fasting from you know, whatever it may be, fasting from different things, television maybe. Um, and you know, they do that for good reason. They do that to focus more on family time, to focus more on being time, having time in the Word, uh, to, to, to reduce their dependence uh, or their addiction to social media. You know, those are all good things. But the truth is, and where it's really different from fasting from food, is I can promise you that you could, you could, you could fast for the rest of your life from Facebook and you'll be fine. I promise you, you'll be fine. You don't really need Facebook. There may be times you think you need Facebook, but you don't need Facebook. You don't need television, and you don't need uh, video games. However, you need food. You can't fast from food forever, or again, you will die. You can't live. Jesus, on, being 40 days without food, that was pretty much on the, the extreme end, the outer limits of what the human body can endure without, without food. And without divine assistance, you can't live more than a few days without water. And, and when we fast from food, I think one of the things that, that happens is, is we begin to recognize our dependence. We begin to recognize our frailty. 
And as we start feeling those real legitimate pangs of hunger, our body crying out for food, we're reminded how much we need God. We see the desperate need that David had for God illustrated beautifully in in the Psalms. In Psalm 63, David writes, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Psalm 42 In verse 1, the sons of Korah uh, write, As a deer pants for uh, flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. That's the kind of hunger and thirst that Jesus is talking about here. A a thirst like we would have if we were in a land where there was no water to be found. A hunger like we've gone 40 days without food. But what exactly are we to be hungry and thirsty for? Let's look at the direction of our hunger and thirst. So what things do people hunger for? I mean, uh, certainly we, we, we hunger for food, but uh, where do we often find or try to find our satisfaction? I think we should notice it doesn't say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for happiness. Now that's what most people, I think, are doing today. Hungering and thirsting after happiness and, and there's a number of things, that specific things that people think might give them happiness. Things, they may vary from person to person, but it, it may be sex or drugs or alcohol. Uh, people might be seeking satisfaction in, in money or friendships or family, career, sports, food, video games, binge-watching Netflix. Could be any of those things. As our world has gone today, it's, it, it's not uncommon today, or at least it's certainly more common today, that people are, are, are believing that their satisfaction can only be found in trying to be a different gender. People, people seek happiness and fulfillment in all of these sorts of things, but none of those are the things that Jesus tells us that we're to hunger and thirst for. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Martin Lloyd-Jones commenting on this passage, he said, Whenever you put happiness before righteousness, you'll be doomed to misery. I think he's exactly right. Uh, Think about it this way. When does adultery happen? Well, adultery happens when people put their momentary happiness as their priority over righteousness. Why do people steal? Well, people steal because they think that having a particular thing is going to make them happy. And they put their happiness as the priority over what's right. Why do people lie? Well, people lie because they think the truth will jeopardize their happiness. And that's more important than their righteousness. These things eventually bring misery to their lives as well as the lives of others who are damaged by all this kind of behavior. Pursuing happiness directly is like the doctor who treats pain rather than the cause of the pain. Doctors can always give you a pain and that may help you for a while, but is it really going to, you know, if you've got a, if you've got a big, you know, splinter in your leg and, and that's causing you pain and he just keeps giving you painkillers, well, that's never going to fix the problem, right? You've got to find out what the underlying issue is. People are focused far more on how they're feeling and on how they're living. 
We're not meant to hunger and thirst after experiences, although so often we do just that. But we're to hunger and thirst after righteousness. So as we saw earlier that hunger and thirst means a desperate need for, but what, what exactly does righteousness mean here? Well, I can tell you it means more than just simple morality. It means more than being pro-life, coming to church on Sundays and paying your taxes. Those are all good things. It's also not limited to simp- simply the idea of justification, the declared righteousness that we find in, in Christ, although it's certainly not less than that. But it's also more than that. It also includes sanctification, that day by day becoming more and more like Christ. We should desire, we should so desire to be completely free from sin in all its forms, however it may show up in our lives. Because sin separates us from God. And we should desire, if we are His, if we are in Christ, we should desire to always be right with Him. Adam and Eve were created in a perfect environment. They were created in a completely right and perfect relationship with God. They had intimacy with Him. They dwelt with Him. They walked with Him in the garden. And that's the kind of relationship that a person who's hungering and thirsting for righteousness desires. This is what God's entire plan of redemption is about. That relationship that Adam and Eve had with God was broken, was lost at the, at the fall. And all of the rest of the Bible, from Genesis chapter 3 all the way to, to Revelation 22, is about bringing that back, to re- restoring that relationship, that God would one day, again, perfectly dwell with his people. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness is not just to desire not to act out in sin, but the desire to be rid even of the desire. <laughs> to not even want the desire to sin. Longing to be holy, to display the fruit of the Spirit in every single thought, every word, and every action. You know, I, I know that uh, I'm in a room of of. of Christ followers. I know this is a room of people who are seeking to, to, to serve God. And I know we're all striving to some degree to please God. But I also know that because of the sinfulness of our flesh, that if we were to have a machine that we could put a little, you know, electrodes on our head and it would, it would beam on the screen over here everything that we thought about over the last 48 hours, and I said, who wants to be the first to volunteer? They'll clear out pretty fast. We, we all have sin. We all struggle with fleshly desires and, and, and selfishness and all these things. But we should strive and desire to be free of all that. As, as Hebrews 12 tells us, to, to, to run that race with endurance, to cast aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. To run with endurance the race that's set before us. Longing to be holy in all things. But unfortunately, concern for righteous living is really, in my experience, and I, I'm sure in yours as well, is really on the decline in the evangelical church. I think as a whole, in, in the Western church, in America, Europe, uh, the, the church takes, overall, takes sin far too lightly. We treat sin far too casually. And I know there's professing believers who 
who think that the idea of having just a desperate longing for righteousness, they would think that that's just odd or even fanatical. Just a little extreme. A little extreme there. Relax. But if you have no longing for righteousness, you have to really examine your heart. The person who's truly hungering and thirsting for righteousness has the supreme and overarching desire to know God and to be in perfect fellowship with Him. And in comparing this desire to hunger and thirst, Jesus is saying we should never be satisfied without it. This hunger, right? Uh, if we, if we are, are doing without food, that hunger will continue to grow until it's satisfied. And in the same way, if we truly hunger and thirst for righteousness, that hunger and thirst to, should continue to grow until it's satisfied. When we go without food long enough, that hunger becomes overpowering, almost to the point of pain. Actually, it really does go to the point of pain. It's not a passing desire. It's not uh, talking about, you know, that, that kind of passion. Maybe some of you have had a time where you, know, you kind of discovered a new hobby, and, and for a, you know, a few weeks that was like everything you thought about. You wanted to, to go out and, and, and do this new hobby or experience this new, new joy that you found. But then over time, it kind of fades. That, that's not the kind of hunger and thirst that God's talking about here. It's not a passing desire, a passing fancy until something else comes along to capture our attention. If you're hungry, that hunger is going to continue until you get something to eat. If you're hungering for righteousness, you're going to have hunger pangs until you possess righteousness. So we have to ask ourselves the question, do you, do I, do we hunger and thirst truly for righteousness? Can you say that living a life that's honoring to God is of primary importance in your life above all other things? The idea of hungering and thirsting for righteousness is either going to draw us in or it's going to drive us away. And unfortunately, the language of this beatitude, as you really consider what Jesus is saying here, is too strong for some professing Christians. And this beatitude challenges those who try to get, get by on self-satisfied, half-hearted religion. Now, you may, think, you may be thinking, all right, listen, you know, I understand the concept here, but, but th that kind of hunger and thirst for righteousness just sounds impossible. It sounds like we could never, ever get there. And, and if that's what you're thinking, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. So what do we do? And as I mentioned, the earlier Beatitudes here prepare us for this one. When we know ourselves, when we know who we are in relation to God, when we, when we see our absolute spiritual bankruptcy before a holy God and we're driven to mourning over our sin, that, that right view of ourselves, that, that understanding of who we are and who God is and our sinfulness and His holiness, that, that, that develops that humility in us. And that humility, that meekness begins to stoke a hunger for righteousness. And if you don't feel that hunger in you, you may need to go back. You go back to meditating on your spiritual poverty. You spend time in mourning. Because when we actually see clearly, when the blinders are off and we see our sin clearly as believers, that should generate in us an overpowering desire to put off that sin and to put on righteousness. Put off the things of the world. Put on Christ. When that appetite begins to be whetted, when we start to kind of see and, and begin to desire that true righteousness, we, we turn to the only one who can truly satisfy that hunger. 
You think, about it, you think about the story of the prodigal son. You're all probably familiar with that story. And when he got hungry, he turned first to the, the husks that the pigs ate. And he tried to satisfy his hunger on that, but that, that didn't satisfy him for long. And when that hunger began to give way to starvation and he thought he might die, he turned to his father. He turned to the one he knew truly loved him and would provide for him. We can never, never fill ourselves with righteousness. Satisfaction of an appetite for righteousness is entirely the gift of God. You'll never find blessedness apart from Him. It's completely of grace. When we truly understand our need, when when we truly see clearly and we cry out to God, He will fill us. When we long to be like Christ, we will be blessed. And in one sense, that happens immediately. When we, when we first embrace the truth of the gospel, when we first, first really grasp who we are and, and our desperate need for a Savior, uh, that, that is fulfilled immediately in justification. When we recognize our poverty, when we've mourned over our sin, when we see our our desperate need for that righteousness when we repent and we turn to Christ, God in his mercy credits the righteousness of Christ to our account. He justifies us and immediately declares us to be righteous. But this is far from the end. We know this is just the beginning. We're now positionally righteous. But that hunger and thirst should always be a continual process. It's it's those who continually hunger who are truly satisfied. The more we're filled, the more we should hunger and thirst for more. And you may say, well, wait a minute. How can you be satisfied and still hunger and thirst for more? Well, the best example I could give you, I I, I don't know about you guys, but I absolutely love Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is like my favorite holiday. I love Thanksgiving. I love getting the family together. We have just a a great time celebrating all that God has done. I, I love everything about it. And I love the Thanksgiving dinner. I, I love the turkey. I love the mashed potatoes. I love the stuffing. And uh, my wife makes the best sweet potato casserole you ever had in your life. And, and I love it. And when I sit down at that Thanksgiving table, I make sure that I'm hungry. <laughs> I come to the table hungry. And when I leave the table, I am no longer hungry. I, I leave the table very, very satisfied. Now, we eat early in the day on Thanksgiving, and so when when evening comes, eventually I begin to feel a little bit of hunger again. And and when I remember back to just that wonderful feast that we had a few hours earlier, and I realize there's more of that available. There's more of that right in the refrigerator, and I, I, I go and make myself a plate, and I am satisfied yet again. It's a spiritual cycle. We're forgiven when we're justified, when we put our trust in Christ. Uh, I'm made clean. I'm declared righteous. I'm put in right standing with God. And then the Holy Spirit continues his work. He delivers us from both the power and the pollution of sin that's in our lives. We're empowered day by day to walk by the Spirit. We, we stand against the fiery darts the devil hurls our way, continuing to grow in maturity until one day, in eternity, the work in us will be gloriously completed.
and all will be as it was meant to be. The picture of a divine feast is actually used more than once by Jesus to illustrate the satisfaction of the kingdom. Luke chapter 22, Jesus tells his disciples, And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And on that day we'll, we'll stand without, without spot or wrinkle in the presence of God, completely, fully righteous. And I would ask, do you long for that moment? Not only because you'll be in heaven, but because you'll finally be completely and totally righteous. Paul displays this ongoing hunger and thirst for righteousness, I think, so, so powerfully in Philippians chapter 3. And actually, if you have your Bibles open, I would encourage you to flip over there. Uh, Philippians chapter 3, uh, and starting in verse 8. You can flip over there real quick. Philippians 3, starting in verse 8. here, the Apostle Paul, it's just such a powerful passage. He says this, he says, indeed, I count not a lot of things, not the majority of things, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I, may be, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I love that. And I love, I love where he says, I press on to make it my own. I press on toward perfection. I press on toward righteousness, hungering and thirsting for that righteousness because Christ Jesus made me his own. Paul illustrates this point so well. He's already been declared perfect in Christ, but he's also being perfected, and one day he can't wait for the day when he will be made completely perfect. He has that immediate righteousness of Christ that comes through faith, but he's still becoming more like him day by day as he shares in the sufferings of Christ and presses on toward the goal for the prize. He's striving for righteousness in every single area of his life. Can you say that as well? And I'm asking myself the same question. Are you hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Maybe you've had that one, that one real feast, that one uh, real just, you know, that Thanksgiving feast where you, uh, you recognized your sinful state and you turned to Christ, but since that time you've been trying to survive on junk food and scraps. This is not the way to live a healthy Christian life. 
Are you still, you may, you may have at one time, but are you still today hungering and thirsting for righteousness? And let's face it, the world offer us, offers us nothing. Nothing but empty cups. There's nothing that will truly satisfy that this world has to offer. Satan tempted, uh, tempted Jesus with all of the riches of the world, the, the, all the kingdoms of the world, if he would just bow down to him. It was not going to satisfy. Scriptures repeatedly attest to satisfaction that can be found only in Christ. Psalm 107, verse 9 says, For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. He supplies what we need. He supplies what we long for. Right? Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Right? So if we're delighting ourselves in the Lord, what is our, the desires of our heart going to be? More of him and what he desires. Gospel of John 4, 14 says, but whoever, uh, Jesus says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the Christian life. Being fully satisfied in him, but having a supreme desire that continues along with Paul to know him and the power of his resurrection. Striving to honor him in every single aspect of our lives. Because he has satisfied our hunger in him. And he continues to do that over and over, continuing to conform us into his likeness, which is the will of God for all of his people. Let's face it, we all, we all desire to be satisfied. As far back as 1965, Mick Jagger declared that he couldn't get it. But it's available to all who are in Christ. Mick was looking in the wrong place. Probably a lot of wrong places. We need to practice Jesus' words in Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. In Christ, satisfaction is not only available, it is guaranteed. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much for the gift of the gospel as we recognize that the greatest need we could ever have is satisfied in Christ. We know that, that our sin has separated us from God, but in Christ we can be reconciled. We have a ministry of reconciliation that, that we, can be, uh, we can be made declared righteous, declared right with God at peace with God, but yet over time continually being conformed to the image of Christ, being more and more like Christ day in and day out, Lord. And I pray that that would be our commitment, that that would be our desire above all things to please you. As the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.9, that whether at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. And Lord, we just pray that that would be each one of our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.